It is the Industry Interactive Podcast, featuring industry-centric interviews, discussions, and more with the premier minds in the creative arts communities. My name is Hyman Black. I host this podcast at DynastyPodcast.com. This week, Alternative Press CEO and founder Mike Shea in an interview for Illinois Entertainer. Here's how that sounds. Hyma Black on the line with Mike Shea, uh, founder, CEO, lifer, from Alternative Press Magazine for Illinois Entertainer and Dynasty Podcast. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's getting a little crazy, but I'm doing good. Yeah, this. I mean, there's a lot going on. I want to ask you a number of questions about what's happening with Alternative Press currently, everything that's happening this summer, but I wanted to kind of get some background on you and the magazine first, if that's all right. So this summer, in fact, this month, Alternative Press turned 30 years old. Um, how does it feel to kind of hit that sort of milestone? Um, it actually didn't hit really too hard. Um, you know, really didn't sink in because you're so buried in the weeds all the time um, from issue to issue and project to project in the daily work and stuff like that. But we, uh, the Rock Hall has given us an exhibit that opens the night before the APMAs in July, and it goes for the rest of the year. And so we have an exhibit. And we're pretty much the second music magazine that's ever really been in there um, besides Rolling Stone. And the, the owner of Rolling Stone, uh, it's like, you know, he is the head of the Rock, board, rock Hall board and stuff like that. So um, there really isn't any other music magazines in the Rock Hall because of that. And um, so to, to have an exhibit in there is awesome, uh, which is absolutely amazing. And, and I give uh, – I'm just so – thankful to uh and, and lucky um that the rock hall decided to include us in there um and uh, so we've been um once we had to start going through and finding all of our memorabilia from 30 years to kind of go back all the way to the beginning in the first like five or ten years or so and dig up all this stuff out of my basement and things uh that's when it really started to hit because you just realize how far we've been and all the things that we did and you know, just the letters from people that were sent in back then and how you did work and your day calendars and everything. It's just, uh, I think that really put a lot of things into, into perspective for us. Well, you know, I think right now it might be viewed as comparably easier to maybe start an online publication of some kind. You, know, you launch a Tumblr, you start interviewing some bands. That's pretty straightforward. But I know it wasn't like that 30 years ago. How much work and trial and error went into developing alternative press, you know, as a as a print DIY publication? Um, well, I think to kind of talk about the first part, I don't think it's easy these days to do something online. It's easy to start it, but it's right. not easy to maintain it um, because you're buried amongst millions. And um, uh, whereas on newsstand, you know, you're buried amongst a couple hundred or maybe 50, depending on the newsstand, you know. Uh, Barnes & Noble carries roughly about 5,400-some magazines, and not all of them are in every store. Um, but, uh, you know, online, you're just music, you know, website number 2,758, but buried uh, in a way that people can't really find you very well, um, at least with a bookstore or supermarket. You go in, and the magazines are all in one area. Um, so I, I think it's actually harder to start something now than it was back then. Back then, all you needed to do was just have enough money so that you could print some issues, and then it's a matter of how you want to distribute it. If it was a fanzine, you just took it around a couple of local record stores and, 
you know, worked out a like assignment thing, and you know, it was two dollars, and you, you sell it, and I'll take fifty percent. You take fifty percent, we're done. And um, and sometimes you would sell, and sometimes you wouldn't, and nobody would care about your zine that we're doing. But um, but it was easier to be discovered because you could get it directly to very specific things, um, genres of people, and so forth. So if you you know, you kind of had a reggae zine or something. You made sure the head shop carried you, you know. Um, so there's a stereotype. But, uh, but I mean, literally, that's been about it. So back then, it was um, – uh, compared to now, um, it was actually easier um, in, really? in a number of ways, I feel, because you um, – people could find you, and people knew where to find zines and stuff. And I feel like now – to kind of start a, a, a site, a website that you want to try and be the dominant force in, you need to have, you know, investments and venture capital money and all this other stuff like that to fund you because online is basically free. And so people don't like paying for free – people don't like paying for journalism. Uh, and you do get pockets that may pay for their local – uh, you know, newspaper online, or maybe they'll subscribe to New York Times or Wall Street Journal online. Um, but if you're just an aggregator, uh, no one's going to pay to write, uh, read what you have. And um, so uh, it's, uh, and I think that's been the one thing that's kind of hurt print to a certain extent is because there's just this kind of this mentality like, well, why should I buy Time magazine to read about Al Qaeda when I can just go online and read about Al Qaeda anywhere for free? And um, and so, you know, it's a um, this is a different world, I think. And um, and then the, the other thing is too is that you don't really can't make much money at all in advertising uh, online with a website. And you know, it's like what do they say? Like uh, for every seven dollars in print advertising, online sites uh, that equates to one dollar for online advertising. And mobile is twenty five cents of that one dollar. So it just shows you the economies of scale, how it drops. And so the more mobile you get, the more the harder it is to fund yourself, And um, which is why so many writers that write online write for free because not a lot of people get paid. Um, and uh, so that's why we really like our Z. <laughs> um, and that's why print isn't dying, which is probably a whole other question, so I'll let you get to that one. So. Well, you know, I mean, uh, along these lines, kind of a then versus now is, you know, now, again, correct me if you feel differently, I think it's easier than ever to discover new music. And 30 sure. years ago, it was yeah. not. There wasn't Spotify. Right. There wasn't social media. But it was what more was fun. It like? <laughs> it was I, I, more I fun. believe that. You know, I, went, I was in New York a week ago, and I walked by the old Virgin Megastore spot in, on Union Square, and, man, that was fun um, because – you did. You went in and you had to go dig for stuff, and you were in there for hours sometimes uh, when you just kind of decide you want to start getting into a different type of music, and you would just go throw yourself in the middle of whatever section that was, and you just spent an hour in there going through stuff, and you didn't know what the hell you were looking at, and you didn't have Wikipedia or, you know, top 15 lists from BuzzFeed or anything as a, as a guide. Most of the time, you went off the album cover art, and... um and or the label, um, so uh, the record label they were on. Um, so you know, to a certain extent, that kind of period is gone. It's we've lost so much of it, and that was real fun. I mean, kind of just sitting around on Spotify while you sit in your chair and you just get fat sitting in your chair and 
You know what I mean? It's just like, and you get osteoporosis problems because you're leaning over your computer and you, you know, and then you're putting your earbuds and so you're getting tinnitus from that. And it's just like, it's not as fun. Um, so, it sounds like uh, a death trap the way it is. It is kind of a describe. death trap. So I guess I've made a nice quote, pull quote for you, but. Uh. <laughs> um, something that, you know, I'm a longtime reader of, of Alternative Press. Something that's always set the magazine apart from some of the other print publications, music publications on the shelf, is the connection with the audience that you guys have. How was that, you know, cultivated? I mean, even pre-internet, you had it. Um, and how was it really determined that that was going to be such a essential component of the magazine? Um, I think Andy Warhol said it best. He's like, Yo, find one thing to kind of about yourself to stand out, to make stand out, and then people will always remember you. So, going back over 30 years. Um, you know, we first started out basically looking like a high school newspaper. We were a broad, we were just a, um, we were a 11 by 17, four page, uh, offset thing on white. And, uh, and it was kind of, even though it looked like a zine, it was still kind of somewhat professionally laid out like a high school newspaper. So it was passable for advertisers. And it looked better than a lot of the other punk scenes in town, which were usually scrawled out and, and, you know, uh, not typeset and were just typed out on somebody's typewriter and then pasted down on some uh, sheets of paper and then photocopied. Um, so then we had um, – then we went into the uh, tabloid format, uh, which was 11 by 14, um, I think, uh, or 12 by 14, 11 by 14. And um, uh, it was more of a square thing, and we went to newsprint. And so we looked more like your Friday – entertainment section that used to be able to pull out of your daily newspaper. And um, and then we lasted two issues of that, and newsprint was so cheap then in 86 that we went to the huge broadsheet format. So we were huge. We, we were the size of your local newspaper. We were huge. And um, no zine was doing that, so we stood out. So when our zine would show up, you know, at sea here in New York, or we would end up in um, – I can't remember outside Chicago we were just, we went in a bunch of the record stores back then. Um but uh we would end up in these stores or Tower Records, we were in Tower Records and uh mm-hmm. it it was huge. You'd have this huge full, you know, front cover of the New York Times kind of size, but the whole front page of it was the photograph. And so we stood out. Um and then eventually we went into uh the eleven by back to the magazine format, which is what Rolling Stone was at the time, which was that tabloid format. And um, then eventually we went gloss on the cover, and then eventually we went semi-gloss on the interior, and, and then we went all-gloss on the interior. And uh, it's so um, it was always just trying to make ourselves stand out and always kind of be um, different from the rest of them. And so we always wanted to have stark photography, and we would spend a lot of money on photo shoots, but we're now known for all those photo shoots and um, everything. I think you just, you know, the key is to make sure you're you're creating something unique and you're not just doing what everybody else does, you know. Well, and something that, again, it, from the outside looking in, it feels to me like the the readership, the audience has a voice and a communication with the magazine, whether it's in social media, whether it's the letters. Like, and, you know, every magazine has a letter section theory, but right. has it always felt like Alternative Press has had more of a dialogue with kind of its fan base? Yeah, we used to have um, – there used to be a statement. We still have it, um, but it's been a while. Uh, we used to have a statement that, like, don't don't um, spin ourselves. And the reason why we would say that internally in our editorial department was because there was a point in time 
the late 90s, may have been early 2000s, um, that Spin put corn on the cover, and um, this is when they were still printing. And uh, in the same issue, they uh, they wrote something else in there. I think it was a record review, or it was a letter, or it was in the letter from the editor's section. I don't know what, but basically they slammed the corn fan, uh, the fans of corn, and kind of stereotyped them. And it was kind of like you're kind of biting the hand that you want to buy this issue. And so we always felt like don't ever insult the fans of the artists that you write about because it automatically kind of, you know, t suggests to your readers that you don't really like this band and you're only doing it because it's popular. And so there's kind of like an elitism that kind of comes out of us, a snobbiness, and readers turn off from you. So that's why we still call ourselves a fanzine in a lot of different ways because we are. We, we're written for fans. We're not, you know... This isn't the great rock journalism story uh, of all time um, because, um, you know, what we, what we do is we get the deep stories and because our artists trust us that we're not out after them. And like a lot of like online websites, so I'll try and be TMZ number 2408. And um, so for us, we get artists to open up and tell us, what's going on and, and say all these things that their fan base want to know. Um, they want to know, you know, when they wrote that big song about the breakup, were they depressed? Were they crying? Were they, like these sorts of things that fans kind of hang on. And um, so uh, that's kind of what I've always kind of felt is we write for the fans and um, we're not here to um, basically Buster Bangs. You know, and plus, I think that a lot of the Lester Bangs era is gone. I think just things have changed now. I don't think you can be Lester Bangs in this day and age. Um, people turn on you too fast. Something else that's really, you know, if you're a long, I've been reading AP for 20 years, you know, so something I've noticed uh, as a journalist and as just a, a, you know, a loyal reader, AP has covered so many scenes, so many movements over the years. It's possibly the only major magazine to have Tori Amos and Insane Clown Posse on the cover of the magazine. You know, why do you think AP has always been able to be so adaptive? Because we never grew old with our readership. We've, uh, we always kind of believed that every year there was a senior class and a freshman class to our readership. So we, we didn't like it took us a while to get used to this truth, but once we did and accepted it, it was made things so much easier. And that was some readers grow up. There's a natural tendency in editors that if they start getting letters from readers saying, I don't like what you're writing about anymore. I don't get what this stuff is. What's all this, what's all this stupid stuff that these kiddies are into? So the editors are going to go, oh, my God, we can't write about it anymore. we got to write it. And it was like, no, let them go. You know, music fans, you know, people grow up. And so when you're in high school and early college, um, certain types of music and certain types of bands and your fanaticism is very different. And then you start getting about middle of your college years, whether you're in school or not, and then you all of a sudden discover, you know, indie rock and Radiohead and jazz and things like that. And so you kind of, your tastes change and they become, uh, you start educating yourself to other things. You're not so kind of in one, one particular genre so much. You're not just a metalhead uh, and, uh, you know, you only like metalcore. And then all of a sudden you start going back and you start learning more about not just the standards of Ozzy and stuff, but you go back to the prog rock days and you start learning those foundations and you start teaching yourself stuff. So 
Um, so we always lose a senior class of readers every year. They kind of grow up, and it's okay. And and but we gain another freshman class that come in and they go, oh my God, you know, like you're writing about Pierce the Veil, or you're writing about as it is, you know, or one of these brand new bands is starting to come up. And, uh, and, and that just, once you accept that, it makes being an editor at a, at an entertainment publication, uh, so much easier. Film, film, you know, um, film, uh, media outlets go through this, sci-fi media outlets go, they just, everybody kind of goes through it. I'm sure in the sci-fi community, at the media outlets there, for the magazines there, uh, you know, they probably had some editors that were really pissed off when, the fans were kind of latching on to the new generation of Star Trek when that came out instead of the original cast. And so, you know, but they eventually had to let it go. And um, and I think that's what you just have to understand when you're writing about essentially pop culture is that, you know, you, you, you have to kind of stay with your – you have to stay nestled in between your freshman and senior class. You don't ever want to try and grow with your – graduated senior class because then your magazine or your media outlet just gets older and uh, and then you're not doing what you set out to do. Well, you know, along the same lines, it has always been adaptive, but it feels to me like around the big pop-punk explosion of the early 2000s, AP really kind of found what I would consider to be the identity that's held in some form or another kind of since then, um, and again, yeah. feel free to correct me if you feel different. Sure. Why do you think that that identity, you know, from let's say lazy kind of description, the fallout boy moment on, why do you think that that's held and worked so well for AP? Because it took, a back, it took us back to our roots, which was really punk rock and new wave. Uh, in 85, 86, that's what was big. It was punk rock and new wave. And, um, uh, and then, you know, and hair metal. Um, but hair metal was what you were supposed to be against, right, if you're a punk rocker. So um, so that's kind of our foundations. Now, you know, 50-year-old punk rockers in 2004, three, when Good Charlotte was around and Fall Out Boy were starting, and Mike Kim would sit there and look at those bands and go, that's not punk rock. That's not the exploited. Um, you know, that's not um, social D, you know, or fear. Um, but, no, it was this generation. So it was It was a – it was a, you know, evolved form of rebellion. And, yeah, it was kids in the suburbs. It wasn't, it wasn't you, know, uh, you know, guys and gals that were living on Avenue, you know, C in the East Village in New York like it was in the 70s. This was now kids that lived in the suburbs. And they were teenagers. And they, need, they had aggression, as all teenagers do, mostly. And they needed that outlet. And to them, pop punk and warp tour stage diving and, and mosh pits were the way to go. I mean, and mosh pits have been around forever, um, but they were just kind of brought in more into the mainstream, and more kids latched onto it. And but it was just still the same sentimentalism that kids kind of latched onto the, onto the lyrics of Pete Wentz. Just as much as there were people that latched onto the lyrics of Black Flag, and I know that's kind of sacrilegious to kind of say Black Flag and Fall Out Boy are on the same level, but Generationally, they are. They, 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 they affected, you know, that generation's young youth um, that were looking for something that they could identify with that wasn't mainstream, that wasn't, you know, Mariah Carey and, you know, Ricky Martin, I guess. So, um, so we've, uh, 
we've just felt that at that point we've gotten to the end of new metal in 2001 and it kind of started to, you know corn and these guys had become huge and didn't really need us anymore and alt rock had imploded already so the big bands like red hot chili peppers and no doubt and all these people were just so big um that uh they didn't need us anymore and we just kind of felt like well what do we what, 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 what's our point then, you know? And, and you kind of start looking around going, like, what are, what are we rebelling against? What's there left to rebel? What's the voice? Where's the voice of rebellion? And you kind of become so deluded by that point. And it just so happened about that time, even though it had started five years earlier, uh, a lot of these bands had formed and were playing in clubs five years earlier, but it started to bubble up finally onto a level, on a national level, that – uh, it wasn't just pockets of communities like Long Island and and stuff. It was in San Francisco. It was it was a national movement. And so we were out on Warped Tour, and our marketing guy out there on Warped Tour that summer said, you know, there's something going on out here, and there's a bunch of these little bands that are, but their fans are crazy about them. Just absolutely, they're like drawing more than the main stage bands. And uh, so we decided to do a test, and we did AFI and Saves the Day on a split cover for 100 bands you need to know, and it went through the roof. And then the next month we did Disturbed, and it bombed. And then we did... I, I, remember, I remember both yeah. of these. Yeah, and then some 41, and it went through the roof. And then we did Cold Chamber, and it bombed. Now, Cold Chamber was like the super hot, you know, band at the time, like, you know, kind of post-new metal band. And Disturbed were really hot at that time. And uh, But nobody cared. Nobody wanted to read about them. But boy, did they want to read about some 41 and Dashboard Confessional and all these bands. And so we found that it wasn't about record sales anymore. It was about fan enthusiasm. And that just turned us on completely because that meant we could be a fanzine again. We, you know, and then you really, you know, spend a two-hour podcast and stuff on this. is like, you know, the magazine distribution model had changed too. In the late 1990s, there was consolidation on a national level. So now you had fewer outlets to get your magazines distributed out to retailers. And these wholesalers had decided to go back to publishers and start saying, unless you start selling 10 15% more copies every month, we're going to start kicking you out of here. And so publishers were all being forced to go to lowest common denominator on their cover stories. And so that's why if you take a look at magazines in the late 1990s, early 2000s, everybody was kind of doing the big scandal or – uh, publishers were pushing kind of uh, 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 cover text that had the word sex in it a lot. Uh, and you had, you know, Rolling Stone pushing nudity and things like that. And it was all because these, these wholesalers were like, you know, you either have to sell so many copies or you're out. And, and then they were going back to publishers and squeezing them for access fees, which was basically they go back to publishers and say, for every copy you distribute into our market, you now have to give us a 15 cents distribution fee. Well, we never had that before. So that adds thousands of dollars to your overhead every month. And so it forced a lot of magazines in this country to dumb down because you're trying to get that quick impulse buy to stay in the retailer. And so we didn't, we hated that game. And that's why we were doing, you know, that's why we kind of went new metal for a while when it was big. Um, but we found with these smaller bands, we didn't need to worry about that. It was literally about fan enthusiasm. So you could do saves a day and sell twice as many copies or three times as many copies as you would have done with Disturbed. And, uh, and so we were like, thank God, like, this is awesome. It's like, it's, it's the new punk rock. It's the new, new wave. And it's, uh, and it goes back to where we birthed from. And we didn't really feel like we had to compromise ourselves anymore. So 
and we've been with this community where we feel home, and now we've made home, and now we're considered one of the, you know, it's basically us Warped Tour and, you know, Hot Topic and, and Journeys and, you know, a couple other outlets, um, and, like, we're the we're the big guys in this crowd, and every year we kind of all sit around and look at each other and go, is it over? Like, are we seeing that this stuff is dying off, you know, because music journalists always say, ah, oh, it's going to all end. It's all going to end, and they usually say that because they hate it. They hate that crowd, and they want everything to be Muse, and, um, and uh, but radio isn't there, and uh, so... But we're still seeing it continue to to thrive, and there's new bands coming in, and uh, and sounds change slightly. You know, it's like no one's going to get rich making EDM magazines because EDM fans don't read. So, um, so it's basically like these kids are still fanzines, and so they want to see pictures of Brendan Urie, and they want to read about Haley Williams and and what's she feeling about feminism these days, and and that's awesome. And I'm I'm just really we're all really blessed that we get to be part of this and do and, and feel like we're part of a community that gets it versus having to do something that kind of would turn, you know, coming into AP being like an insurance job, you know? Well, I think it's interesting, you know, just going off what you're talking about here that, you know, you've referred a few times AP as like a fanzine and, and tapping into yeah. that fan culture, especially with this wave. In a lot of ways, it feels like you guys were ahead of the curve because now everything is fan culture, you know, everything on Tumblr, everything on, you know, like going to festivals, fan culture just reigns supreme on the internet, especially if you're in high school or college right now. And you guys are really kind of on that wave before, before, you know, everything was Buzzfeed. Right. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it's not a question, but I just thought that was interesting. Um, Very true. The, Something that happened last year for the first time with the Alternative Press Music Awards. Um, it's, an, it's an event that's happening again this year, July 22nd. What was the impetus for launching that last year, and what did you and the team learn from, you know, putting together an award show for the first time? The first reason was legitimacy. You know, like, our community really isn't invited. It's never – when we started doing – when we kind of went back – we like to call back to our roots – um, when we kind of latched, when we came, kind of came into, um, you know, the foundations of emo and all that stuff in the early 2000s. Uh, you know, for the first few years, we would have professional music journalists that worked for dailies in New York and Chicago and stuff like that. And they would talk to some of our editors uh, and they go, why are you, I feel really sorry for you, man. You got to write about all this teen crap. And um, the editors would be kind of like, ah, you don't get it. Like, this, there's really a movement here, and and that's why if you really go back and you take a look at a lot of those stories that came out of there that were written in these major papers, you should, especially Warp Tour reviews, when they would send somebody to go recover for Warp Tour um, from these dailies, uh, they would sit there and they would basically have like a sense of, you know, they'd be looking down upon this community, you know, they would they would they would um, they would do it with dismissiveness, and to a certain extent, that was better because it meant that the community were rejects and freaks, and that's what they wanted to be. And um, so, you know, we we kind of felt that we weren't taken seriously. And so a couple of years back, I thought, like, you know, we don't have anything where we can all kind of come together as one day, as a whole community. I mean, we kind of have pockets where some of us see each other out on Warped Tour 
on the East Coast or maybe in the West Coast, but we and maybe a couple of us see each other at South by, but we don't really all get together in one thing and just have a party. And um, an award show would be a really awesome way to do that, where we can honor, you know, some bands, have fans vote for them, um, and really just try and have a party, um, but legitimize ourselves um, at the same time. But as we kind of put the show together, uh, well, we tried to put it together the first year. So the first show would have happened in 2013, but we didn't, we weren't ready yet. Um, internally in our staff, we weren't ready yet at that point. So we kind of put on hold. And then we said, okay, 2014, we're going to pull the trigger. And um, so we originally booked it to be in front of the Rock Hall. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the Rock Hall or if you Google Google Map uh, the place, but if you take a look at the very front lawn of the Rock Hall, it's like a mm-hmm. it's like a it's like a hourglass. It's really weird, and we thought this thing was going to be smaller. And um, so, but we we landed Fallout Boy, who were those guys did not have to play our show, but they did because they wanted to, and they are a perfect example of a band that blows away all those bands from the late 90s in alt-rock that were huge, um, that basically blew, blew us off after they became big. We gave them some of their first covers in the United States, and they just didn't care anymore after they hit a certain level. And But Fall Out Boy never did. They still, these guys get, they make a nice living, and they tour the world, and they can get anywhere they want to get. Um, but they rerouted their tour, so instead of going from, Harrisburg down to North Carolina where their next day was uh their day their uh to their next gig they routed through Cleveland and stopped here uh and um and and played our show with our orchestra and I've got nothing but respect for those guys for for doing that because they didn't need to do that and it shows you how sincere and real those guys are so that was my follow boy part but anyway the main point is that we sold out that front part in 15 minutes and went oh crap we need a bigger park so we uh, there's a park that was on the back side of the Rock Hall, Voinovich Park, holds about 10,000 people. Um, that's packed. <clears throat> so we moved our show back there, and then uh, the show just started taking a life of its own. There was such a need and a desire from the industry first, the, the people in the industry, the people, the record companies, the people that worked at Hot Topic, the people that worked at the merch companies and the agency group, and all these other stuff. That they wanted this show bad because they all felt like. We need our own thing. We're all tired of, like, you know, going to other people's stuff. We want our thing for our crowd. And um, so then the show started getting bigger. And Josh Bernstein, who had worked at Revolver for years and basically started and built the Golden Gods Awards, which had become this huge, beautiful monstrosity, um, and then their company got sold, and then – uh, he got booted out of that um, because of the new ownership, and so he was looking for a gig, and so Kevin Lyman brought us together, uh, and Josh and I – Josh is a fanzine editor. He started the same exact way that I did, uh, and so we got along immediately, and so he brought all his expertise into how to do the show, and so – and Josh knows all the metal people. He knew every, He knows everybody, and so he – you know – Two two weeks before the show, he pulls Slash out of a hat, and we're like, we put Slash on our cover number. Uh, what number was that? Eleven? Uh, uh, number number ten in 1988. And um, 
So he pulled Slash, and then the week before the show, he pulls Joe Perry from Aerosmith out of a hat. Um, and so this show, it like, it literally started to steamroll us. It became such a huge monstrosity and got bigger. And so then everybody showed up. We had four tours show up that night. We had Warp Tour. All Warp Tour was here. All of uh, the Mayhem Festival, the metal one, was here. The Fall Out Boy Paramore Tour drove in. And the Panic the Disco Tour drove in from Kansas City. And, uh, which is, you know, another long trek. And Panic's coming back this year again. Um, so, um, you basically had a party of everybody there. And the fans, the fans felt like, we got, this is ours. This is ours. And so you had fans taking pictures with their idols. So that would be Brendan Urie and, and Vic Fuentes and all that stuff. But then you had the idols backstage taking pictures with Joan Jett and their idols. So we had two shows going on, like two experiences, I guess, in a way. And so I left that night and I went home. I, I, was, I was so burned out. I was absolutely, my phone died right when the doors opened. So there was no way for anybody to get a hold of me. Uh, we were out in a park and we were way overextended in the amount of work that we had to do with being, because we were basically a, an award show within an outdoor music festival. And so the music festival part killed us because we, I would spend like half my night working security and not doing what I needed to be doing. Um, so I never met Billy Corgan. I never met Joan Jett that night. I never met Joe Perry. Uh, and, uh, so, um, so we did, so we did this whole show. So I left the show. The show was over. I went back to the rock hall where the after party was. They'd already stopped serving booze. I was like, oh, forget it. And I was, and I could have gone to the after party. There was like an, an informal after party at a hotel. Uh, and, I didn't go. I went to CBS. I got some uh, stuff for aloe for my huge, horribly sunburn I got because I'm Irish. And uh, I literally went home, and I was, in, I was zoned out, and I just sat on Twitter, and I just kept hitting refresh pretty much all night. And um, we were trending number one on Twitter, and I kept waiting us to fall off like after an hour, like naturally, right? And it just stayed there and stayed there and stayed there and stayed there and stayed there. It, went, it stayed there. About 27 hours um, after I got done, like, after I finally saw it fall off a little bit. And it was just from all the social media that the kids had posted, how many kids loved it. So it provided legitimacy. And that's, then I started getting flooded from the musicians and the industry people saying, thank you so much for doing this. You made us legit. Like, we're real now. You had an orchestra on that stage playing, you know, Paramore songs and Fall Out Boy music. Like, where the hell did that come from? No, that would never have happened for us. You made a, you made it, you took a Grammy show and you made it our show. And uh, instead of it just being like a banquet, which is what, you know, some of these managers, these huge managers for these bands had walked onto the, on the grounds that morning and they went, this is not what I thought it was going to be. This is much, much, much bigger. I said, what did you think it was going to be? They, they, we thought this was going to be in a hotel lobby and it was going to be like an award show banquet. And I, no, 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 no. This is. <laughs> So, very long story short, I gave you a lot of like juicy stuff there. Uh, it, it it provided legitimacy for us, and I think what we learned was um, not to do a show in a park again, um, <laughs> unless we have more staff. Um, so that's why the show this year is inside the queue where the Cavs play and Katy Perry usually plays and stuff, um, because now people can have seats and we don't have to worry about weather. It was it was downpouring two days before our show, and we had no backup plan. We had no idea we were going to put our show in Cleveland because the, the, the number of people coming had grown so large that and, – and unless we were going to pay for a union hall, which we couldn't afford, we didn't know what we were going to do. So um, 
Kevin Lyman has this website he uses called Wonderground with a U, and he uses it for Warp Tour. And he, he was telling me three days before the show, and it was raining outside. And I'm like, Kevin, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he's like, don't worry, you're going to be fine. I'm like, what do you mean I'm going to be fine? He's like, you're going to be fine. It's like a 1% chance of rain. I'm like, what? everything I'm looking at online says it's going to be 40% chance of rain. What are you talking about? And so he sent me a link to the site, and it's like one of these um, – uh, it basically pulls in weather uh, predictions from like, hundreds of websites, including the government, and then does this really like kind of 538 style of prediction, and it does it by hour, and you can type it in any city, and sure enough, I looked it up, and it had like a 1% chance of rain and sunny. <laughs> So I learned Kevin Lyman's secret. Um, so uh, so uh, now I use that for pretty much anything now. Um, uh, so um, so anyway, so yeah, so we, we decided no more parks. We decided that was right off the bat because we don't want to be dealing with porta potties anymore and, you know, fun stuff like that. So, you know, before I get to my next question, I just have to, since I have you on the line, I have to bring up like the two things that really stood out to me. I was I was enormously impressed as a fan as a, and as a journalist at the award show last year. But the two things that really stood out to me is one, how impressive it was that you did have like Joan Jett slash Billy Corgan alongside you know so many of the newer acts. And I thought that like I couldn't think of another place where you got to see that style of cross generation, which I thought was very cool. The other right. thing is that Mark Hoppus took a picture with every single person from the second he got on the red carpet to the end of the night when the show was over. Yeah. Like, I I saw him on the red carpet, and then I saw him after the show, and I just thought that that was such a class act that he took a picture with everyone there. So, Completely. Anyway. Yeah, he yeah. is. Hoppus is a class act, man. That guy is as legit and as real as, as his fans hope he is, and he is. He is like that. And and uh, he was um, – and it was really hard to um, – not have him back again this year as host. Um, we just we had one way, two ways we'd go. We could go the Billy Crystal route, right, which is like the Oscars. We had the same host for five years, or you just kind of shake it up every year. And so um, we decided that. Uh, and plus the fact you never know with a star at, at Hoppus's level how busy he's going to be. And we, at the time, they were working on that Blink record that was supposed to come out. And so we felt like. It's more of a probability he isn't going to be available, and so we had uh, so Alex and Jack had approached us, and they said, "Hey, you know, if you're not going to have Mark, can we host? We want to try it." And so, and and they are like those guys are beloved all time. I was another of these bands that are legitimate and real, and one of these guys to take pictures of everybody, and um, and so it, we were just so lucky in that respect. So that's great that you said that. So something else, and you brought this up at the beginning of the interview, and, and I only have a couple more questions. I know that you've been really generous with your time. Something else that's happening that you brought up is Never Give Up, Alternative Press Magazine at 30. It's an exhibit at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum. It's opening Tuesday, July 21st, which is the night before the APMAs. Um, so you kind of, you, you know, you touched on this a little bit, but what can people expect from that? You know, how can they access this exhibit? Like, bring us into everything that's happening with it. Um, well, what they can expect of the exhibit is pretty much AP's life story, you know, from our foundation. I mean, if anybody thought that AP was started as, like, just some corporate rock thing, um, once you see the exhibit, you're going to know we're not. Definitely. I mean, they they even had me bring in the desk that I started AP on, which has all the exacto knife scrawls into it from when I used to cut the, um, 
the uh, rows of galleys of typeset text from the first eight issues on. And um, so uh, it's it really does tell our whole story. You know, there's there's more reasons than not why we shouldn't be here because there's magazines are like bars. They're like they don't stay around long. And um, and so to be a magazine that's been here for 30 years, much less, is really crazy. Um, and it's uh, but it's a good crazy for us, obviously. And so um, you're going to see a lot of memorabilia about how AP came together and how it was first formed and all the things that um you know the things that we dealt with and uh and it's and all the bands that we broke and we helped break and um you know uh we were the first cover in the US for Radiohead the first cover in the US for Oasis first cover for Smashing Pumpkins the first cover for um we blink 182 we we were literally like 2 weeks away from each other spinning us for the first cover uh um, so, uh, there's a lot of bands like that that we broke, um, back in the nineties. And, uh, and so I think that's what you're going to learn. You know, we're not, we're not corporate at all. Like we're not owned by anybody. We're really pretty much, a, we are an independent magazine and we literally survive off of our fans buying us and subscribing and people supporting us with advertising and stuff like that. We're we're not part of some conglomerate. We're not part of Vice, not part of Time Warner or Condé Nast or anything, you know? So something else I wanted to do, if you have a second, just get some quick takes on a handful of artists, four or five artists that, to me, you know, represent the diversity of alternative press and or represent some of the artists that I feel like you guys have a good story with. Is that cool? Yeah, go for it. Okay. You already kind of brought up Fall Out Boy. Anything you want to add? They were at the top of my list. To me, they're maybe the quintessential AP band. Yeah, no, they are. They're, they, we've been with these guys from, you know, near the beginning for them. They've been around a little bit prior, about, um, and, uh, but they've always just been, we've just had a really super tight relationship with them, even when things were on the way down for them for a while. Um, you know, Pete got on a red eye and flew to Cleveland. Uh, from LA and he sat down with us and he, and he talked to us about, you know, why, um, you know, the band still mattered so much and, um, to him and, uh, and, you know, that they, they just, um, they, they're just, they're just real guys and we love them so much and, and we we're just very, very happy with them for them because they're, they've been able to kind of break past the ceiling and become successful on a pop level, and that's awesome. I mean, that that's what you want, you know? Not everybody's going to be that way, but the bands that can do it, God bless them, you know? Um, Nirvana. Nirvana was on the cover, which is amazing. Yeah, you know, Nirvana and ours relationship was, um, it wasn't super, super, super tight like Spin had with them, um, because Charles Peterson, um, we got, we worked with him a little bit, who, who was basically the grunge photographer out of Seattle. And, and pretty much any of the major cover, Al Marts, publicity photos, and a lot of the live shots at that time that came out were all Charles Peterson shots. And, um, uh, it's the sub pop and all that. And so Spin worked with him quite a bit. And, um, so our relationship with Nirvana was, was, it wasn't that strong, but it, we, we had a good relationship with them. But, you know, again, like those guys were kind of like brand new. Like the, after a while, they just didn't care. And they didn't want to really do anything they didn't want to do. And, um, so it was difficult to cover them after a while. 
Um, and plus the fact that, you know, at that point they were so big that it, they were pretty much gone into Rolling Stone territory. And so, you know, it was difficult for us to be kind of propped on or put on the press list at that point because we were – you would usually go Rolling Stone and spin in an AP. And, uh, and so we kind of moved on. Uh, away from the grunge era, and we were covering industrial. So while Spin was all over grunge, we were covering Trent Reznor and mm-hmm. uh, Marilyn Manson and and uh, Wax Tracks Records and Mute Records and a lot of the British bands and stuff like that. And so we were, you know, while Spin was kind of ignoring all that, we were covering My Bloody Valentine, you know, while they were covering Alice in Chains and, um, and Soundgarden and things like that. So we were one of the first U.S. covers for Soundgarden, so... Paramore. Paramore, another one of these, um, you know, here's somebody, I, I've got so much respect for Haley, and, I, and this, is, this is honest God truth. Here, again, very fall boy, but here's somebody who, hang, who knows Taylor Swift, hangs out with her, has got her cell phone number, right? But, you know, there is, there is very few reasons why she should be hanging out in all of our crowd right now. She should just be... Grammy World, she won a Grammy. The Paramore, God bless them, they won a Grammy. And they should just be doing that and hanging out in Ellen, right? And, um, nope, she's still very much uh, part of our crowd. And next um, Tuesday, we're going to be releasing a cover uh, for our AP Maze issue. We have four covers next week, uh, just like we did last year. And we have an amazing um, cover uh, that uh, we'll be including her, um, and it's and it's just, I can't even tell you because it's so cool. Um, and she didn't need to do it, but it was her idea. She wanted to do it. And, and she just also did a story, uh, about, um, with Best Coast, um, uh, for, uh, Magnet magazine. Uh, I think she wrote the cover story or something. She did the interview, I think. Um, and she doesn't need to be doing that. She should be working with Cosmo, you know, but she's work, she's staying part of this community. And that, I just have nothing but respect for her for that. I, I, when you can, re- when you, when you have the option to walk away and you don't, that I think is awesome. So that's my paramore bit. A little long, but no, yeah. Final one, because I know we're gonna, you gotta go. I have one more question after this, but Slipknot. Sure. Slipknot. We were we gave him the first U.S. cover. Uh, Slipknot. We have a long relationship with those guys. Uh, our Slipknot covers are infamous, um, and um, they. Um, they're just they've we've never had a bad relationship with those guys uh we've had some you know some ones where we just kind of got blown off um by some of the other bands from that era, but Slipknot never blew us off um and they've uh they're just great guys they're great guys and guy man are they talented i mean they're just they're so big they're so big right now and they're and uh and I, again it's just like with fall boy and paramore like it is a band that could have fizzled out. It could have just been like a one-note samba, and it would have been over with. And they weren't. They continued to grow and diversify a little bit and mature. And it just—I've—they did it right. They've done it right, and that's—and I've got nothing but respect for those guys. Seriously. Well, final question again. Thank you for all. Yeah, the time. no, I've got time, so you do whatever, how many you want. So. Well, this is what I was going to close with. You know, obviously, this mm-hmm. summer it's the 30th anniversary of Alternative Press. There's the print edition still going. There's the website, the podcast, the award show now, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame exhibit. There's a lot to the brand. Where do you see the spirit and the, and the brand and the execution of alternative press, you know, 
moving forward as, as audiences and music and technology is always adapting? What's the future of AP? Uh, I don't know, and that's the fun part. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I think that um, uh, when we started AP in 85, we were just kids that were really liked our music, and there wasn't really anybody in, our, in Northeast Ohio that were writing about it. And we wanted to know about it. We wanted to, we wanted to know why our favorite bands were coming to, or when they were coming to town or why they weren't. And, um, and we wanted to read record reviews about our stuff and not just read them in British, you know, Melody Maker and, and, uh, New Music Express, uh, and New Musical Express. And, um, so we, but we never had a plan. Like, we just made a zine. And, you know, throughout the years, we wrote, business plans because we had to like convince a banker or something or we had to like try and get investors and never did work out and things like that and we put together these plans and we always kind of felt weird writing these 10 year long business plans because we were all like we don't know what like we don't do okay we don't know we don't know what's going to happen because we we were we were always at the mercy of something. We were mercy of an economy, mercy of changes in the magazine, mercy, mercy of music industry stuff changing because we weren't a mainstream magazine. You just can't sit there and say we're a magazine for teenage girls, like, you know, 17. That's easy. It's like just keep being a seven, magazine for 17-year-old girls, like, and be mainstream. And, uh, you know, uh, and then you're writing about NSYNC in the 90s, and then you're writing about the Jonas Brothers 10 years later. And um, so um, – so now, like, every – things happen so fast. You know, all of us publishers and media outlets were doing so great when Facebook changed your algorithms about a year ago. So now your, your posts can end up in news posts really really easily. But now they changed it again, and they're trying to narrow them down and trying to make it so it's only their major partners now and eliminate a lot of publishers from being having their content show up on Facebook you know, you've got uh, the rise of Instagram, the rise of Snapchat. Um, your YouTube account is important, so now you have to start making original series for your YouTube uh, channel. Um, and, you know, you kind of have the pressure to be funny from Funny or Die and Snapchat and, and, or Vine. Uh, and, um, you know, you're competing now with major brands online. You know, you're not just fighting on a magazine rack with – whoever's right next to you in your category, now you're fighting with everybody. So now you're fighting with Noisy and you're fighting with MTV and you're fighting with, you know, um, and even some of your brands, your partners, are now making their own content. And so they don't necessarily need you all the time. And so the good thing is that we're grandfathered in. We have 30 years of being around and people respect that. And they look at us like we're legitimate. They, our, our community looks at us like New York Times and CNN there's a lot of times online where some drama will break out, and all the little sites out there will just automatically say, ah, you know, and they all get wrapped up in it. But everybody kind of waits to see what AP says, because if we say it, it's legitimate. And, um, and so that's a lot of responsibility on us. Um, and so, you know, we have, uh, you know, huge chunks of people that see us as, as the authority, and then you've kind of got the upstarts, right, the kids that kind of grew up reading AP that want to make – they want to be the AP, and they see us as uh, we were called uh, the Death Star by one of them, uh, which I thought was funny. Um, but, you know, it's kind of a compliment, right? But at the same time, look, hey, when I started AP, Spin Magazine was a Death Star. Rolling Stone was a Death Star. So I get it. I respect it. And, you know, does it mean I'm going to blow up 
you know, at some point, some kid's going to figure out a way how to kind of get get the you know get the missile down the the right you know the right uh, avenue, and it's going to be all over for us. I don't know, but you know, we've been very 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 fortunate, and we've always been agile, and that's been the smartest thing being in Cleveland is that we can be agile. We we don't not New York City. We don't need hundreds of thousands of dollars to be able to like change. We can just we can change uh, a lot faster, um, and. Um, and so I think it'll be very interesting to see where year 31, 32 plus go on. You know, I think it'll be really exciting. It'll be exciting where technology goes. Print isn't dying, by the way. It isn't dying. There's there's been a movement back into print. I think there was an irrational exuberance about digital for about five years there across the board from major publications like Advertising Age and stuff like that all the way down. Um, and most of the people that were saying print was going to die were people that worked at tech companies that needed the marketing dollars to be pulled from print publications to be given to them. And so, you know, I had too many South by Southwest tech conferences where I had, you know, uh, guys 30 years, 20 years my junior sitting on panels going, ah, print's dead. And they were all being funded by digital startups. So, um, but now we found that it's not the case. Most print, uh, most media companies that have print titles are making 65 to 70% of their income from print still. It hasn't collapsed. And, and to try and make money in digital is practically suicidal. So print is still there and people still want print because they want to hold on to it and they like that option of being able to put it on the floor. And celebrities and rock stars and stuff still want their interviews in print because they know that they're permanent. Whereas you do your Q&A for you know, website A, and it shows up on the website at 11 a.m. in the morning, it's off the homepage by 4 p.m. And then by the next day, it's gone. So what did you get by giving that exclusive to that website? So we were finding that there was just a great irrational rush to declare print was dead. And so print now will be like vinyl records. It'll be, it'll be better produced. It'll be more expensive. It may not be as frequently found, um, but it, it's still going to be collectible. And that's why the smart magazines are making their, their publications collectible. They're making them valuable. Uh, and they're not just like, you know, 60 pages of glossy paper for $2.99 anymore. Um, you know, they're, they're now going to be six, seven ninety nine, and they're going to be on uncoated stock, and they're going to have nice covers, and uh, they're going to be more about photography and things like that and long-form journalism and so forth. So, um, and that's what we're doing. That's what we've been started to do. Um, and uh, uh, that I'm really excited by, you know. So... We'll see what ends up happening in the end, but if you kind of show them where we're going to go, I have no idea. <laughs> and that's how we started 30 years ago, so I think it's worked. So I think I should just stay on that kind of motive. <laughs> um, Mike Shea, Alternative Press, thank you so much for – I mean, this was an hour. This was fantastic. Sorry. Yeah, but, yeah, you no, got me on a good great. day. I had my Starbucks. Yeah. I'm rambling, so it's good. So Me personally, uh, I started reading AP – Mid '90s, I think my first covers were like Weezer, Fiona Apple, and Tool. Like 96. oh, the Green Weezer cover the, off the Green record. The Green no, album, I think Pinkerton. I think Pinkerton. Like. Oh, it was the Pinkerton one. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, uh, yeah. Well, that, um, okay. Yeah, I know which one it was. The, the 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 Green one that we did, the Green cover was really beautifully shot. Was the one we broke them up. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, because the guys in the band said things during the interview. They we interviewed all the guys separately, and they said things about each other. I think, and then, um, uh, and they and they didn't know what the other ones thought of each other. So it was pretty crazy. So. Wow. Well, I'm looking forward to the APMAs, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame exhibit. I'm going to be coming out next month. Thank you so much for taking some time, Illinois Entertainer and Dynasty Podcast, Mike Shea. 
Thank you so okay. much. Okay. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself, all right? Thanks. You too. Bye. All right. Bye. This has been the Industry Interactive Podcast. Thanks to Mike Shea of Alternative Press for being on the show this week for Illinois Entertainer. You can find more Dynasty Podcasts at DynastyPodcast.com. For the Dynamic Dynasty, my name is Haima Black. Dynasty Descend.